0: Nothing will give you better dividends and more rewards than taking care of and investing in your mental health. When we feel in the upper echelon of our mental health, the world and life is amazing. We are filled with love and creativity and spontaneity and connection, and, and we live more.
1: Hi, my name is Rongan Chatterjee. Welcome to Feel Better, Live More. Hello, how are you doing? I hope you're having a good week. Thank you so much for joining me and tuning into this week's podcast. Today's episode is all about food and how we can eat to enhance our mental well being. Now, I sort of feel that most of society understands that what we eat is vital for our physical health. But I think what is less widely appreciated by the public, but also with healthcare professionals, is just how important the right foods are for our brain and our mental well-being. And my guest today is one of the world's leading voices in this brand new field that's called nutritional psychiatry. Dr. Drew Ramsey is a psychiatrist. He is Assistant Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at Columbia University, and he's also founder of the Brain Food Clinic in New York. Now, Drew's book, Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety, Nourish Your Way to Better Mental Health in Six Weeks, is a powerful prescription for anyone who wants to optimize their mental well-being through their diet. Now, the bedrock of Drew's approach is evidence-based nutrition, and he believes, as do I, that everyone working in the field of mental health should be talking about nutrition. Over his 20 years as a practicing medical doctor, Drew became frustrated that the robust data confirming a relationship between food and mental health simply wasn't making it through to doctors, let alone patients. Now, depression is one of the most disabling mental health conditions in the world. Other mental health complaints are going up all of the time. And because of this, Drew has made it his mission to bring the evidence on nutritional prevention and cure to the masses. The trick, he says is to find foods that do one of two things. They either feed your gut microbes and fight inflammation, or they put your brain into grow modes. And which foods do these things? Well, in our conversation, Drew reveals his power players. He gives specifics on different nutrients and how they work in the body. And he also details which kinds of foods can actually treat depression and help all of us with our mental well-being. He also provides a helpful, realistic guide to changes that you can make right now that don't have to be expensive. Mental well-being is such an important topic, especially these days, and I was really honoured that Drew took some time out of his busy schedule to join me on the show. I love his passion, I think his work is invaluable, and I really hope you enjoy listening. Now before we get started, just a quick shout out to Athletic Greens who are bringing you today's show. As I've just mentioned, the quality of our nutrition is critical, not only for physical health, but also for our mental health and our emotional resilience. And there's no question in an ideal world, I would prefer that everybody gets all of their nutrition from real whole foods. But I also know from 20 years of seeing patients that many of us struggle to consistently do that for all kinds of reasons. Busy schedules, poor sleep, too much stress, not having enough time to cook the right kinds of meals. Whatever the reason, the end result is that many of us are left deficient in key nutrients. That is why I am a fan of good quality whole food supplements like AG1 by Athletic Greens. One tasty scoop contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more in one convenient daily serving. And I think that's one of the main reasons that I like and recommend AG1. It is a really simple way to start each day and give your body the nutrition it needs. It helps to fill any nutritional gaps in your diet, can help with energy and focus, it can aid with gut health and digestion, and it also helps support a healthy immune system. I've been taking Athletic Greens for about three years now, I think. I genuinely think it's one of the best whole food supplements out there. So, if you want to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. For listeners of the show, if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you can access a brand new special offer where they are offering my audience a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs. Vitamin D, as you may have heard in my recent podcast with Dr. Roger Schwelt, is a crucial ingredient for many functions in the body, including our immune system. Many of us have sub-optimal levels, especially at this time of year. So I really do think this is a great offer to take advantage of. You can see all details by going to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. Just a quick reminder also about the new membership version of Feel Better Live More for just five pounds per month, which is around eight US dollars for those of you in America. You can listen to every single episode completely advert-free. This includes the Friday bite-size episodes, and you also get access to a once-per-month exclusive Ask Me Anything episode where I answer some of the questions that members have submitted. If you want more information, just click the link in the episode description on your podcast app or go to drchastity.com forward slash membership for more details. And now, my conversation with Dr. Drew Ramsey. You have been a practicing medical doctor for over 20 years. You're a psychiatrist, a very well-respected psychiatrist. When did you first become aware that food could help improve our mood?
0: Well, I, I think it began for me pretty pretty early. Uh, I was really interested in my physical health. I was an athlete in college. Back then, I was a low-fat vegetarian, and I was sort of, before it was cool, it was very strange. I was a medical student in Indiana, which in the United States, or everybody listening in the UK, is right in the middle of the Midwest. You know, I was known for meat, potatoes, corn. And uh, and so I was very interested in food and in health and the connection uh, between that, and really had... had Kind of bought into a heart first model, uh, really thinking about how to adjust my diet, getting rid of cholesterol, saturated fat, those kind of things. Um, on a personal level, it really wasn't very good for my mood in a certain way. I was having a lot of uh, problem with really significant fatigue, some mood lability, lower moods, um, a lot of angst. and Maybe some of that's just you know being a young doctor in development, uh, uh, but. For me, during residency, this, um, so this is our specialty training in psychiatry, I had this really stark contrast. In my personal life, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about what I'm eating and how to optimize that. And in my professional life, as we're learning all about the brain and brain health and therapy, there's no talk at all about this. And, and it really just struck me. But, but I, I think when I really became aware is the data started coming out. Right? Evidence drives everything in medicine. And in psychiatry, the, this is back, there was not nutritional psychiatry. I remember there was, a, you know, at Columbia University, there's a psychopharmacological listserv. So it's all like the big psychopharmacologists, really like the, some of the smartest guys in psychiatry and, and, and women um, are on this list. I should say men, women, and non-binary folks as well. And, and I remember writing about omega-3 fats and saying, hey, there's this data. And it looks like these things have an antidepressant effect. And I remember there was this moment where I was like, wow, where do these things come from, omega-3 fats? And it's like, well, they come from fish. Why aren't we talking about fish and evaluating that in patients and thinking about how to get people to, if, if there's good data about it, why aren't we assessing it and thinking about it? And, and I think that's so, well, that probably is like 2002, 2003. It really becomes just on my mind a lot. How do I incorporate food into my clinical work as a mental health practitioner? And eventually this, develops into, with a few other colleagues, uh, the beginnings of nutritional psychiatry.
1: That's early, 2002, 2003. If I think about the research I've read in this area, particularly in the last few years, it strikes me that you're talking maybe 17, 18 years ago about seeing that relationship in the data between foods and our brains, food and our mental health, it sounds very much as though it, it did come from the data. Do you recall an early patient at all, or any experience where you where you suddenly thought, "Hey, man, in my own life, I'm really trying to focus on my lifestyle and what I'm eating." Yet, with my patients, I'm kind of, I don't know, looking at their symptoms, looking at lab values, and trying to trying to treat those symptoms. It's, you know, when you when it, when you say it like that, it's it's pretty obvious. But for so many of us, when we're in that system we kind of don't see the relationship, at least not early on in our careers.
0: And you're scared to do anything different. It's weird. I mean, you know, I, 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 I've I've taken it on the chin and enjoyed it, but, you know, I've been teased as, you know, Dr. Kale at, at, at you know, National American Psychiatric Meetings. I think what you're pointing out is um, there is this relationship. We haven't incorporated it into our model. And particularly what I noted is we haven't done that with mental health. You know, where There's maybe a gap in physical health. People know, hey, you don't... What should you do to take good care of your heart or avoid cancer? Or are there some foods that are good for that? Almost everyone has a few. When you say, hey, if you um, have a history of depression or anxiety in your family or any mental health problem, or you're a parent and you've got uh, kids, you're raising them, you have some conditions in your family, you want to just try and minimize your risk. Are there things you should be doing every day, foods that you should be eating that at least the data suggests, and and now I would say suggest strongly, are going to help with that? And and it it really turns out, since when we're talking about, you know, 17, 18 years ago, the data that has come out has really been very robust, supporting a relationship between uh, what we eat and and, and not just our brain health, which is very important, of course, that's where our mental health comes from, but our mental health, and specifically depression has been most of the data. That's so important, as you know, because depression is the most disabling illness in the world, and that that just means it prevents us as a, a population from really achieving our, our kind of highest possibilities uh, and the, the potential with nutrition and nutritional interventions in, in, in terms of prevention, I, I think in mental health is unparalleled. I don't know of any other set of data or set of employable, economical, possible interventions for our mental health than food. That is the real promise and excitement around nutritional psychiatry.
1: Yeah. I mean, we're going to get into this. We're going to go into a lot of different areas, I hope, in this conversation. But before we do, I thought it would be worth asking you about inflammation. Inflammation is a term that many people, many of the lay public now have heard about. They sort of know there's a you know disease and symptoms might have something to do with inflammation, but I think a lot of people still don't really understand what it is. So I, I wonder if you would explain how you view inflammation in the context of our physical and mental health, Uh, but then also really split it up into body inflammation and brain inflammation and how those two things sort of link together.
0: For sure. so Inflammation is a a very important system. It's what protects us. It's what keeps us safe. Inflammation is really at the root of our immune system and how our body recognizes threats and injuries and then eliminates them. Um, However, Because there are a lot of things stimulating us, whether that's noise of the city or air pollution, by the way, very, very strongly linked to your risk of depression, or whether it is a stressful or toxic work environment where you're always wired and and, and revved up, there's a lot that is stressing us. And and because of that, it's a little bit like, I, I make the analogy sometimes, it's like if you went in to take a test in school and the fire alarm went off. And instead of leaving, they said, yeah, This test is important. You just sit there, take your test. And you're taking the test. And then the sprinklers come on, you know, and it's, and it's messing up your work. And the, the proctor of the exam says, Sorry, you know, it's a tough exam. Having too much inflammation is a little like that. You can probably still finish the exam, but you're just, you're, your alarms are preventing you from uh, uh, really living your best because they're going off inappropriately. Uh, inflammation is uh, uh, very tightly linked to our food. Because the, the largest part of our inflammatory or immune system is our gut. And so if you think about food as, as really a set of signals and, and as a way to really fuel and nourish your immune and inflammatory system and, and also to regulate it. There's also this concept that a lot of people have heard about now called the microbiome or the idea of the microbiome. Uh, these, and these, the reason we're hearing about these two ideas is they're very linked. The microbiome is a set of organisms, primarily bacteria that live in your gut and mostly in your colon. And they're at the center of really helping regulate a lot about our body, but including our inflammatory response.
1: Yeah. I mean, super helpful to, I think, explain that to people.
0: I'm curious what you feel is really one of the best ways to explain inflammation, because you've heard so many people talk about it. And I really agree. It's one of those words that's easy to pass around And I'm wondering how how it sits with you in a way that makes sense and resonates with patients and people.
1: Yeah, you know, as uh, I'm sure you would agree, you know, the way we explain things often depends on who we're communicating with. Um, As I'm sure you do, I change my communication style in clinic, depending on who that patient is in front of me, their level of understanding, the sort of the energy I get from them, the sort of, uh, you know, the prior interaction, it all plays into it. But I guess in a in a sort of public setting like this, how would I explain inflammation? Yeah, not dissimilar to you would say inflammation is a way that the body um, tries to protect itself. So, uh, you know, we all understand everyone knows the feeling of when they've cut themselves and they cut their ankle and it's bleeding, and then the body needs inflammation to try and repair that ankle, right?
0: Yeah, it reminds me, I remember once uh, talking about anxiety and and writing about it and really talking about how it's a superpower. And it's funny, as you're talking about, you know, inflammation is a superpower. I mean, when you think that you can get cut or trip and sprain your ankle and, and the body, you know, protects itself, then repairs itself while you're just, you know, you're sitting on the couch. You know,
1: snacking yeah. exactly we don't we don't have to do anything you know that that our bodies are built to thrive right they they will take care of that cut without us doing anything which really is the miracle i think of the human body and something we sometimes i think we sometimes forget that in medicine just how intrinsically powerful our bodies are but that inflammation i think in the short term you know to to to, to fix that cut fantastic for your skin to repair and heal. I guess what we're talking about with um, when inflammation is, is linked to lots of these chronic diseases, including depression and anxiety, we're talking about that chronic inflammation, that sort of low grade, unresolved inflammation. And I often describe it to patients as saying, look, it's almost as if your body is trying to protect itself from attack every day, but it's protecting itself from the attack off your daily lives, whether it's your diets, your lack of physical activity, the, the chronic stress, the air pollution, you know, whatever it is, lack of vitamin D, all these things are the body's interpreting that as a, an insult in some way. And it's, it's mounting its immune response through inflammation. Well, inflammation is one of those mechanisms to try and calm it down. But actually, if it's happening day in, day out, that's when it can start to become problematic.
0: Yeah, and that and that's where, as you ask, we should point out talking about mental health, there is a real strong uh, link and set of evidence now linking inflammation and chronic inflammation to depression and anxiety, and, and as well as brain fog. You know, we really think those are symptoms. Increasingly, people have kind of identified and complained, and also. Those are symptoms that often get explained in all kinds of incorrect ways and treated in all kinds of incorrect ways, both by conventional medicine and also by the wellness industry and supplement industry. So I think it's really important to talk about the reality of it. So the the, the simple truth is uh, when you have inflammation, a lot of us, we've experienced this. When you've had the flu or when you've been sick, you get a sense, a feeling of um, anhedonia, loss of pleasure, loss of engagement, kind of retreat and isolate. It, it, and oftentimes our mood goes down. We just feel really sad. We want to kind of curl up and rest. And that makes a lot of sense from your body standpoint. They're kind of shutting things down, uh, saying, you know, hey, we need to heal and fight this bug. Um, anxiety comes on board where when we get ill, we get a little hypervigilant, meaning that we're looking around. We don't, you know, we don't want to be messed with, right? We want to heal, Um, And then there's a little brain fog, where as you think about it, you know, as you're sick, you don't want to be having all your best ideas, super creative, you should run to do this, or, you know, take care of those errands, or right? Because there's kind of almost intention of your body's alarm system shutting down some of that process and having a little bit of brain fog. So in real life, though, when we're having those symptoms... It, it's horrible. So there's some data, large meta-analyses looking at anyone who's been taking an antidepressant, if they're also on any anti-inflammatory agent. And, and I do want to note something a lot of people don't know, I didn't really know, is is that SSRI antidepressants, which are the most common prescribed medication, are, they're often thought of as serotonin medications. They are. But they also uh, help uh, fight inflammation in a way that's really kind of interesting when you think about how they work. But Back to this meta-analysis, individuals on uh, antidepressants who were given any type of anti-inflammatory medication got twice as better if you are on anti-inflammatory medication with your antidepressant. And so, just to me as a clinician treating depression and anxiety every day, it just brings that right into the clinical room. All right, how do you do that in a patient's life? Where is the inflammation coming from? How do you eliminate it? Can you? um, How do you measure that? So that's, I think, how how it relates.
1: What I think is really interesting for, for many of us is this idea that what we do to our bodies can affect our brains. So this idea that if we can reduce inflammation in our body, that can also... Reduce inflammation in our brain, or certainly help symptoms in our brain and you have mentioned the gut brain axis before, um, but I guess i 'd like to tease out how exactly food is impacting what 's going on in here because there is yeah i guess structural components let 's say you you 're having an omega three fat. And that's involved in the structure and many other things in the brain. But there's also this communication pathway where this is kind of sending signals as well. And I'd I'd love to just unpick that a little bit, and and also really understand, uh, Drew, when you have got patients in front of you, who presumably by the time they're referred to you as a specialist psychiatrist, you know presumably struggling in in some way, in quite a
0: significant way with their health. Isn't that, by the way, totally, totally effed up about the mental health care system all over the developed world? Like, you talk to me when it's like, well, got serious, so you had to go see a psychiatrist. That is such BS that needs to change because, you know, everyone has to see you once a year and be like, hey, and like, if they're not paying attention to their health, you say, hey. You know, in some way, you should pay attention to your health. I'm going to take your blood. Hey, look, here's some stuff that's doing well. Here's some things you need to work on. We don't do that in mental health. The only time you get to see a mental health, a psychiatrist, is if you have significant symptoms. And and I, I just wanted to point that out to everyone. I think it's a it's a really shift we all need to make to think about mental health and mental fitness and our own mental fitness and how do we prevent these conditions. And then if we have them, really use everything that we have to treat them So. So, sorry to just jump in there about that, and I also want to say because I'm a psychiatrist, that thing you're saying like the brain and the body being different, I don't think like that. I, I don't. I don't in any way separate my body from my brain. When we're talking about inflammation in the body, that's that's synonymous with me. There yeah. is no inflammation in the body without inflammation in the brain.
1: I get it. Me too. I don't. I don't really think like that. It's more about. I think a lot of people I've spoken to really do see the body like that, or they've been conditioned to see the body like that. And therefore, it's about trying to help people understand that actually, if your body's inflamed, your brain's inflamed. Uh, But what do you need to get certain buy in with your patients? Like do certain patients come in, and you're trying to help them change their diet to help their mood, their happiness, their depression, their anxiety, whatever it is, are some people skeptical? And if so, how do you overcome that?
0: Well, I think everyone should be skeptical because it's mental health. And I think so many, because it's a subjective field, so many people have ideas and opinions and experiences of it. And so but the first thing that I do is I, I'm a general psychiatrist. I take a good psychiatric history and I, I, I treat the patients in front of me. Um, I don't think about medications as really different than psychotherapy, as different than lifestyle. These are all really important tools to battle depression and anxiety and i want to try and understand for each individual how do those fit in some people come in they're like zola for for my brother i need it i want it now other people come in and and that's an antidepressant you know come in and they're really you know they're against medications for whatever reasons when it comes to food i want to be curious what people think what they've heard i want to be clear about my intention that You know, I I have my own set of values and biases about how food can work and can't work when it comes to mental health. And so the first thing I do is try and check in and assess where is someone around those ideas and where are they as an eater? And then in terms of buy-in, I try and have it be part of the ongoing conversation where I'm both um, showing some enthusiasm about uh, how nutrition impacts mental health. I'm trying not to be annoying I find that doctors in general are really awful about food, but really fear-based, right? Oh, don't eat that because you're going to get a heart attack. You know, don't do this or whoa, you know, and, and no salt. It, it, it's not loving or kind. And and I've really done away with that. I think people who talk like that from a medical perspective really aren't doing any good for public health. I think fear-mongering is just silliness. You can eat all kinds of different foods and, 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 and have a reasonably healthy life. I really try and focus on the hopefulness of it, that if we think about depression and anxiety in modern terms, in need to be depression and anxiety, of have a big graphic here, the new science of depression and anxiety. Like let's just stop thinking about this as, you know, mental health is basically suicide and SSRIs. So let's really start thinking about mental health robustly. We we incorporate these different factors in, in, in how we approach patients. So with food, um, what, what you see oftentimes is, first of all, mental health affects it. And we should be talking about it because, and we do talk a little bit about symptoms, right? Has, has depression affected your appetite? And a lot of patients say, yeah. And we say, oh, that means you have depression. It's like, Right, but what does that mean for us as clinicians? It means that your patient isn't nourishing themselves in the most important period of recovery. They're trying to get better from depression and anxiety. So what do you do in that situation? Well, in nutritional psychiatry, and as we talk to and, and train clinicians, and we now have a really nice clinician community of nutritional psychiatrists, we think about all of the ways that you get more nutrients into uh, a brain in, in different, uh, different ways. Like if you don't have an appetite, soups and smoothies are really great for you. Uh, nuts, handful of nuts is a great, great handful of nutrition. Right? There's all kinds of ways to uh, help accommodate where someone is in terms of uh, th- th- their illness with nutrition and to incorporate that into treatment.
1: I think one of the things I've, I've always loved when I've heard you speak uh, or seen you on Instagram is there's a real open-mindedness, there's a real humbleness. Uh, I imagine your patients really really enjoy their interactions with you I would imagine from from the sort of um, the tone with which you speak and I've seen you speak what I'm really curious about is you obviously have a very personalized approach to each of your patients you know everyone has a different set of life experiences family background genetics desires needs yet you've also written this quite a fantastic book, Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety. And I'm asking this because this is something I've struggled with in in my publishing career is, I believe in personalized medicine, but then you're trying to write a book that's going to help masses of people. Uh, I know how I've tried to do it. And I'm interested to, you know, how was that for you? Was that a struggle? Did you, was that something you had to think a lot about? Because it's a great book, it's helping a lot of people. But how do you deliver that personalized approach and a book that's written for everyone.
0: I, I hope in this book, Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety, Chapter 6, Eat or Heal Thyself, it does a good job of a pro- helping people see how I approach food. This isn't a diet book. This isn't a, uh, this isn't a gimmick. This is really trying to ha- ask you as a reader, as an eater, to take a step back. There's been so much chatter misinformation so much removal that people have had from their culture uh, of origin uh when it comes to their nutrition our our sense of taste and, and sense of what's healthy for us has really been abdicated by a mix of big food and, and big science in terms of food i have to say because i'm a psychiatrist I, I would say i haven't figured that out in terms of mental health and psychotherapy i i the, the stories i hear the the ways i um, see people cope and have resilience and triumph um that that is a really hard thing to explain what is psychotherapy what is mental health improvement how do i as a psychiatrist kind of get in there and and and, and help individuals do that work uh, in terms of food nutritional psychiatry and, and the evolution of those ideas as i worked specifically with um laura lechance who's a, a colleague who came up to me at a conference and said i wanted, i want to I wanted to do some work together, and we started trying to create a manual of nutritional psychiatry of sort of how do clinicians do this. We created the antidepressant food scale, and we just really asked a simple question: All right, with all this nutritional information, what nutrients matter for depression? And we found there are twelve that had significant levels of scientific evidence that they could help prevent depression and help treat depression. Things like zinc and magnesium and B12 and omega-3 fats and folate. Uh, and iron. And, and then we said, you know, what foods on planet earth, just natural whole foods have the most of these 12 nutrients per calorie? Really simple question. And that led to a list of the top plant foods and the top animal foods. And, and I, well, I don't love listing foods like that. It, it led, because everyone says, you know, what's number one, watercress. I was like, Oh, I should eat more watercress to fight my depression. And 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 what really led me to understand uh, is, these are called nutrient profiling systems, and the antidepressant food scale was the first nutrient profiling system that was ever created specifically for mental health. And, and what Dr. LeChance and I understood is that if you looked at food in terms of food categories, and this is what n- nutrient profiling systems really encourage you to do, and what you see is what's, what's in the top five animal foods. You know, three of them are bivalves, mussels, clams, and oysters. Why is that? Well, we look at one of the most important nutrients for mental health. It's vitamin B12, the largest vitamin uh, we eat. You'd think we'd all know what is the top source of vitamin B12 in the natural world. And I certainly did, didn't. It's clams. I mean, who's called clam a superfood, right? It's like, who said, like, oh, you know, I'm going out tonight. I want to make sure I recover from my hangover. I'm oh, you know, getting a B12 injection? It's like, hell no, I'm having pasta van gole. My B-12 level's up. I mean, it, it's <laughs> – so uh, it, looking at uh, – to get to your questions, how as an author do I personalize recommendations? I think, one, in, in trying to let people know that my approach and goal of the book and the limitations of that. And then, two, to try and replicate as much as I can the way that I, I think about this information with what I feel – I hope you and I can can bring to authorship – which is the experience of a clinician. Because of clinical experience, you and I have the privilege of of hearing and sharing thousands of individuals and their families and their stories. And oftentimes, especially when it comes to mental health, uh, and especially on social media, what's getting talked about and shared is an individual story. And there's real importance in that in terms of, you know, today, if you have bipolar disorder or borderline character disorder or addiction, any substance use disorder, rather, you can put in a hashtag and see an advocate, see a, you know, someone who's recovered. You can reach out to resources. I mean, it's really, you can direct message someone and be you know, chatting with um, a mental health advocate or even a clinician pretty quickly. So I think that's wonderful. And at the same time, though, what you're talking about is that when you see um, uh, the aggregate of many, many stories, um, it, it does create, I think, the humility of understanding um, the importance of our commitment to patient autonomy our commitment to health, and then the many ways that humans define that. It's really, uh, I think sometimes early in my career, I I sound a little almost anti-vegan, and and I really shifted one as I I was employing a number of vegans. But but also, um, as I began to really uh, think about um, freedom and choice, and again, where I wanted to be in the conversation which is helping people, no matter what they're deciding to eat, feed their mental health and take care of their mental health and prioritize that. And that, that, that should really be the top tier of our goal because that, that's the best. It's the, I mean, that's why we separate the brain and the body, or people traditionally do. It's just the brain's the best part. that's that's all of it that's like that's the whole game right there's like you know there's a lot of other organs you can replace i always kind of joke sometimes to say you know when you go to like the home improvement store there's a lot of body parts you could buy right you can buy like your kidneys like filters you can buy like pumps like your heart it's like consciousness hopes dreams generator you know art like you know there's none of that anywhere except the human brain so
1: yeah i think you've done a great job in the book actually i think uh one of the things I really liked actually is this focus on dietary patterns. I think you're a fan of the traditional dietary pattern rather than labeling it around a particular country necessarily. I mean, we can maybe expand on that. But also, you do focus in on these 12 nutrients, these 12 nutrients that can help us all build healthier, more vibrant brains. So you know that I really like the interplay between the specific nutrients, but also the the dietary pattern. So I wonder whether we could spend a bit of time on what some of those nutrients are, For and sure then you can talk about how they fit into certain patterns.
0: Yeah, I remember the dietary pattern. I think is a really brilliant shift that researchers made, and and have had Felice Jacka on. She's really yeah. uh, you know one of the founders of this field. I mean, she's done some of the best research and led, I think, really our movement. Felice, um, uh, Dr. Jacka, ha- had actually the first real nutritional psychiatry paper ever published in the American Journal of Psychiatry, what we call it the Green Journal, really kind of one, one of the you know, top journals in mental health. And it was actually her, her PhD dissertation. I think a real inspiration for anybody out there who's in graduate school or thinking about a career. Dr. Jacka shifted careers. Became an epidemiologist, got her PhD. Her her dissertation gets published in the American Journal of Psychiatry, a paper based on it, which was a correlational study showing that dietary patterns. So it's not about just B12 or this or that, but a dietary pattern. So the pattern of all the foods you eat uh, um, uh, A traditional dietary pattern. So those are you know foods everybody's going to recognize. Where everyone's heard that phrase, you know foods like grandma ate, right? So potatoes, tomatoes, you know okra, salmon, beef, right? Stuff that is real food compared to a modern or Western dietary pattern. And and a traditional dietary pattern was correlated with a significant decrease in depression and anxiety. So it's just a correlational study, but really fascinating. And I like this shift because it allows us to eat pizza and chocolate cake and have the occasional beer and, and, and not freak out. Because we have a dietary pattern that's consisting as a foundation on really what we're called nutrient-dense foods. Again, those foods on the antidepressant food scale, like you know, uh, leafy greens, you're always going to have a lot of nutrition. Not a lot of calories, and that's what we look for in nutritional psychiatry. And then, in terms of individual nutrients, in the book, I really try and, and break it down with these um, illustrations because, yeah. one, I, I thought it was a lot to keep in my own head. Like, oh, like what's the top source of vitamin B nine? Like, ah! and I, I just liked having a set of foods. And, and from that, you know, your question earlier, how do you sum it up? I found that that iterative process of writing with it, uh, and working with my editorial team really helpful. Of like. Look, you do you know we talk about the thinking and the power players, but if somebody's just getting started, what's the food they can pick up in the grocery store today and That really inspired me to get very specific and so in in this book, we have a, a list of the power players, and the power players really represent each food category. So um, red peppers are on there because they're one of my son's favorites, but they're also really, really high in vitamin C. They're easy to add into any dish. I I find they're easy to snack on. They're easy to dip in hummus. They're easy to throw in your frittata. They're easy to throw in right there. And they last forever in the fridge. So that's one of those foods that for me is power player. And in nutritional psychiatry and eating for mental health, there's some other usual suspects, wild salmon, but really, as a clinician, I find, all right, the real challenge is anchovies and sardines. Those were a challenge for me. I'm like an Indian, a farm boy. I mean, as, like, no. as a
1: clinician or as a parent or both?
0: Well, I, I think first they were challenges in eater, where yeah. all that omega three data came out. And I'm like a low fat vegetarian who like turns up my nose at fish. And I was a little bit of a picky eater. I mean, I've had some weird, you know, I didn't like pie until I was like 12. I thought it was very strange. So but fish was really hard for me. I didn't eat any fish until I was, I don't know, I ate a little piece of sushi every now and then, but no, like any cooked fish, no, any bivalves, oysters, blah, I, I had no idea. And then I just, I don't know, the data compelled me to get a little more curious. Um, my wife and I were living in New York and kind of like had this realization, I you don't know, realize, you know, New York's great in all kinds of ways, it's also an island in the sea. <laughs> and there's all kinds of amazing seafood and started meeting a lot of people in the restaurant industry and having a lot of friends who were young chefs and this sort of introduced me to simple ways to prepare fish and I started developing my palate. One of the things I really encourage people to think about in, in the book, just like the, the way to think about your mental health and evolution, to think about your palate and evolution. And there are a lot of foods that I I think we've lost. A lot of us have lost the tradition of, of uh, of, of, of seafoods or nutrient-dense foods or how leafy greens are used. A lot of us don't have that knowledge of, of how to prepare and cook foods at home in very simple ways that are very easy and economical but that support our health. And um, so, uh, The hope is to translate those nutrients, get people excited about these nutrients and what they do in our brain, but really translate them into foods and then help people get those into our lives. That's why our, our newest program in our clinic, we have a virtual cooking school, the mental fitness uh, kitchen. And it's been so much fun. Uh, anybody can uh, is welcome to, to join our classes where we're really trying as a clinic to help people actualize this, that yeah. if you need coaching around how to take care of your brain with nutrition and, and integrate these foods, if you need to learn some new recipes, if you need um, some community support, that we really want to, as a clinic, Try and replicate some of the data. There's a great study, the Healthy Med trial. Um, and I don't know, I just feel like geeking out on science with you for a minute. So let's just talk about the randomized let's trial. Do it. So I am just like, all right, so there's all this correlational data, but like you and I know, like correlational data is great, but it's not gonna convince anybody. You know, I am a Columbia psychiatrist. It's a very it's a great department, but it, I wouldn't say it's conservative, but it, it, it is historical in the sense that it, it's seen a lot of things come and go. And it's not going to be impressed by correlational studies. And, well, you know, the, the, the serious clinicians, policymakers, they need to see randomized trials. So now there have, been, there have been five trials of food specifically used to treat people with clinical depression. The first was by Felice Jacka, the SMILES trial. Felice has yeah. been on the show. She talked about the SMILES trial. The trial is incredible. What it does is it goes into a mental health setting, about 67 patients. The majority of them are already taking an antidepressant or in some type of psychotherapy. So kind of like a clinic like our clinic. And they give people seven individual uh, therapy sessions around dietary change by a nutritionist. Over 12 weeks, what they see is a third of individuals going to full remission from their depression. If this were a medication, it would be a multi-billion dollar blockbuster drug. It's all we would be hearing about. So food does this. That's one trial. That's then...
1: Just let's just, let's just, that was, I mean, I love the SMILES trial. I think it was a landmark trial when it got published. And let's just, just repeat what you just said at the end there. A third of the patients... Like
0: a third of the patients go into full remission. 32.3% go into full clinical remission. And the, the, that is this incredible. Absolutely this and, incredible. In this trials, remission is a very important idea. And I, and I think that let's sort of tease that out because there's response like, oh, like, how are you feeling? Like, oh, you know, those avocados, that weird stuff Ramsey gave me, those brain food smoothies. Like, I'm feeling a little more energy. Like, I'm not crying. I can feel a little better. But that, that's just response. Remission is actually, you don't have depression anymore. And so... It, it, it does feel like um, an important thing to note that people go into full remission. And let's talk. How do they do that? It wasn't a lot. Was, people started eating like one more seafood meal a week and like a half serving of vegetables a day more. Or, and like a, actually, like a serving of vegetables, one more serving of vegetables, half serving of fruit, a couple of servings of beans and legumes a week, a serving of fish a week. And then the big thing they did is 21 fewer meals of highly processed or quote unquote unhealthy food and
1: 20, 21 oh so per 21 week, so fewer
0: meals per yeah. week or fewer you know so that's snacks that's you know that, that's the difference between you know going out and getting a burger and fries and I don't know making yourself a vegetable stir fry um, uh, yeah. so that's the SMILES trial great trial in America to get a medication approved you need two good quality randomized clinical trials so this is number one uh it's what 2017 i think is this comes out so four years ago also interesting like translation to clinical practice like, we're, we're jumping up and down about this we've trained um over 200 clinicians around nutritional psychiatry and in, in, in our um we have a, an e-course and a live training that we do but it's interesting how it takes a long time to translate a lot of questions to get from clinicians like am i allowed to talk about food it's like wow! It's like one of the most foundational pieces of mental health and brain health, and and we're not even sure that we're allowed to talk about it sometimes in mental yeah,
1: health. Yeah, I mean, this is this is something. Um, you know, I want to hear about more of these trials that you're about to about to share. But just on that translation to clinical practice, I, I remember so clearly. I think it was three or four months after the Smiles trial came out. Or maybe it was a year and four months. I I can't quite remember. It was a winter conference. And I think that paper came out in November 2017, if my memory serves me correctly. Um, And I was speaking at this Royal College of GP event where we were teaching doctors. There must have been, I don't know, a couple of hundred people, a couple of hundred doctors in the room. And at the start, I asked them, how many of you talk about food or ask your patients who are coming in with depression? about food. And I, you know, this wasn't sort of measured in any way, but just from the show of hands, it was about 5% off the room. Uh, then I presented the SMILES trial, a few other papers, including your, uh, your 2015 uh, editorial in The Lancet Psychiatry, which I think you co-edited about um, how you want to see nutrition becoming as important to psychiatry as it is in cardiology gastroenterology endocrinology i presented that paper that that editorial many many times actually um and it was interesting i maybe 25 minutes i i spent on this and then i asked them how many of you are now going to start having a conversation about food with your patients who are struggling with depression and pretty much everyone's hand went up so it's it's really interesting isn't it how you know there is this good data out there yet it really isn't i don't think translating or certainly it hasn't converted to mainstream medical practice yet
0: well it's really hard because we frame is mainstream hard. medicine as we take care of disease and we have a community standard of how to do that and if you're going to deviate from that community standard you're putting yourself in, in, in some medical legal risk if i have bad outcomes someone comes to me and I, there's a bad outcome and they say well you know how how, how is he treating you it's, oh he prescribed the mediterranean diet and we were like talking a lot, that, you know, that doesn't, that's not complete robust treatment maybe in some people's eyes or evidence-based enough. Um, so, I, I, and then there's a the question of how that's why we developed our clinical training. Cause I, I sat for years where, you know, I'd write little three by five card, like little papers of like I'd hand them to patients like lentils, okra, you know, I was like, <laughs> it's like, you know, the, these are some foods to try this week based on a conversation or, right? you know, uh, uh, and that, that we've had about their preferences, but you know, how do you do it, and how do you incorporate it? Where, look, people have a lot to talk about in terms of mental health, and one of my concerns is, you know, people have maybe forgotten I'm a psychiatrist, and they think all I do is like talk about food. Like, yeah, hey, I don't want to talk about your mom or your dad or your development or your trauma, and yeah, you know, that's all I want to talk about. I mean, I, and so how do you responsibly though drop a little intervention or a little evaluation first that's efficient? How do you walk through the day of an eater? How do you frame this? And so we really worked hard in our practice with um, a Samantha elcrief who's uh, really been uh, such a my co-conspirator, collaborator in terms of developing our clinical team. And uh, she's especially a, a early uh, early fan of of yours. And, and uh, besides seeing you early in that video, really kind of shared with me some of, some of your progress and got us really tuned into everything you're doing a couple of years ago. And So, so she and I really put together uh, um, all of the data to help support that because clinicians need to make evidence-based interventions only, in my opinion, when it comes to food or as best that we can, some things we don't have evidence for, but where is the evidence on some of these conditions? It's quite robust for depression, not as robust for anxiety, but there's certainly some data. And then what do you do? how, How do you assess somebody? And then how do you activate changes? You said you're a great example. In a talk, you don't just say, hey, here's all this data. Hope you guys are compelled. You put people on the line, come on, put the hands up in the air, everybody. Do you ask about this or not? No. Huh. Here's all the data that's come out. Let me say, are you going to ask about this? And you're making people, in the next time someone's with a new patient, they're feeling a little pressure from you to be evidence-based. And I think that's exciting. I, 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 patients aren't interested in being evidence-based. Patients are interested, I think, in, in getting better and also doing things that matter. And I think what's exciting yeah. is, for me, you know, a lot of times mental health, we're trying to, to take something away from a patient in, in a certain way, right? A, a bad habit or a defense or a toxic relationship um, or a substance. Uh, w- what I liked about food is one, patients were already doing it. You're already eating three, four times a day. And so it was like a, it's a much easier pivot. You're already in the grocery store. If I can help you look right instead of look left, wow, I can make a massive outcome in your health in your mental health,
1: particularly. Yeah, let's talk about the evidence base for a minute, because I think there's an interesting follow-up for me in my head, which is, you know, I've heard you talk about before how we can uh, learn a lot about brain cells and brain function from its structure, right? So yeah. um, we we can, you know, you can expand upon that for sure. But then if we if we take it further, right, and go, okay, There are certain nutrients, there are certain foods that help to build a healthy, more robust brain. Okay, if that's the starting point, which kind of makes intuitive sense, I think, to a lot of people as well, that, yeah, well, kind of what we fuel that brain with will determine how it grows, what its material is, how it functions. So let's take that one step further. So we have some good studies on food's role in depression. Okay, great. So now we can make an evidence-based recommendation to our patients with depression. But what about those patients who don't yet have depression? They want to stave off depression. It seems pretty reasonable that, hey, well, actually, if you adopt these kind of changes, you may uh, reduce the likelihood of going down that slippery slope, but we may not have a trial on that. We have a trial Uh, on that. No, no, no. Oh, we We have have a trial trial on that? that?
0: We have a trial okay, well, you can it- tell
1: me about the trial. But but just to finish off that thought, it's basically, well, what about other brain conditions then? So you must see patients with bipolar and, you know, all kinds of different psychiatric conditions. And I don't know if we have trials on those specific conditions yet. But would it not stand to reason that, well, look, there's no harm really improving your diet and improving our diet is going to help our brain function better you see what i'm getting at it's kind of like evidence is important but we also need a bit of common sense as well how we expand that to other things
0: yeah and i think exactly and also it's how do we you know in medicine we get specific for conditions and so there's that kind of universality about some nutrients foods concepts around eating that are good for brain health and that's always going to be good for mental health
1: so I mean, let's go back to some of those studies. You, you started off with the SMILES trial. SMILES trial.
0: Healthy Med then comes out. Healthy Med, I love it. It really is what we try to replicate with our mental fitness kitchen cooking class.
1: Just taking a quick break to give a shout out to Blue Blocks who are supporting today's show. Now, good quality sleep is essential For so many aspects of our health, we all know, don't we, that life feels better when we have slept better. We know our mood improves, our focus gets better, we have more energy, and we have an enhanced ability to interact with our loved ones. As a doctor, one of the biggest obstacles to sleep that I see is light, and in particular, too much artificial light in the evenings. This is where I think blue blots can really, really help. They make some quite brilliant blue light blocking glasses, which I myself have been using for over two years now. And they really do make a difference to the quality of my sleep, especially if I'm spending time on screens in the evening. And I think at this time of year, as the days become shorter and the nights become longer, I actually think it's even more important. All of their glasses come in non-prescription, prescription and reading options, And I think so much of their glasses that my wife and both of my children have their own pairs. Now, they are a little bit more expensive than other companies, but I genuinely think that the extra cost is worth it because they are really high quality. The glasses are made in optics laboratories in Australia. They ship worldwide really quickly and they enable easy returns and exchanges. If you want to try them out, and if you're not sure and have been sitting on the fence for a while, I really want to encourage you to give them a go. They are offering my podcast listeners 20% off anything that you order on their website. They've also got other fantastic sleep promoting products such as low blue light bulbs and 100% blackout sleep masks. Just use the discount codes LiveMore20 at the checkout for 20% off. That's all one word, no space. L I V E M O R E 20. Or one word, no space, or just go directly to their website, blueblocks.com forward slash livemore. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com forward slash livemore. And the discount will be automatically applied. Vivo Barefoots are also bringing you today's show. And this is a brand that I really, really like. I've been wearing their shoes now for over nine years, well before they started supporting my podcast and they really have transformed my own life as well as that of my family, many of my friends, and a lot of my patients. You see, you can get so many benefits when people move to minimalist shoes like Vivos. I have seen with myself and with my patients improvements in things like back pain, hip pain, knee pain, foot pain. I've seen plantar fasciitis get a lot better when people move to minimalist shoes. And the other thing I love is that people tend to enjoy their movement more because when you are walking around in minimalist shoes, you're much more mindful of the experience as you feel more connected to the ground beneath your feet. Now, a trial came out last year. It's shown that just a few months of wearing vivos for your daily activity. This is not for running. This is just for your daily activity, like walking, shopping, working. That increases your foot strength by almost 60%. I think it's an incredible statistic. It doesn't really surprise me, but just think about that. You're not doing foot exercises. You don't have to find time in your day to work your feet out. Just wearing the vivos increases your foot strength. They've got a great range of shoes for kids and adults for every activity from hiking to training to everyday wear. And the truth is, they are the only shoes that my wife and I wear, the only shoes that I'll get for my children. If you have never tried them before, I really would encourage you to give them a go. It is completely risk-free to do so because they offer a 100-day trial for new customers. So if you're not happy, you can send them back for a full refund. For listeners of my show, if you go to vivobearfoot.com forward slash livemore and follow the instructions there, they are giving 20% off as a one-time codes for all of my podcast listeners in the UK, USA, and Australia. You can get your 20% off code by going to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more.
0: So it, uh, the healthy med trial uh, took individuals with depression. As you look in detail at this study, there's a couple of things that are important. The first, oftentimes, people like, oh, like food is for like mild depression so this study, 86.3% of the people in the trial have severe or extremely severe clinical depression. So, so this isn't mild depression. They get a little tiny dose of fish oil, not really enough in any way to make a difference with depression. The data on fish oil and depression is mixed, but it's a much higher dose. They get a couple hundred milligrams of fish oil, and they get a Mediterranean-style cooking class. What they see over uh, three months, a minute, six months is a significant reduction in uh, depression and anxiety scores that stay low. They drop quickly and they stay low and and individuals are no longer severely depressed and so again, in terms of risk mitigation, what was striking about this trial is antidepressants take a month to work. A lot of these individuals were already on medicines so again had to resist a depression that wasn't working. They get given a nutritional intervention and encouragement to eat better, and I think it's a 45% reduction in their formal anxiety rating scales and, and about the same for their depression rating scales. So that's the healthy bed trial. And, and that's in some ways what we're trying to do with our cooking class is really, you know, uh, once a month, give people a feeling of cooking together, of, um, uh, you know, kind of sharing the the spirit of really trying to care for our mental health in an active way with our nutrition. Um, And then the joyfulness, you know, big part that um, Samantha brought to our practice and and brings to our clinical work and our clinic and, and you see her influence in the book is really around an idea of joyfulness. As we, as we sat in the food space, maybe five years ago we started working together and saw all the, I don't know, we're we're both very peaceful, I think kind of people. We just saw this, there's a a tone in the debate around food that we really wanted to try and transcend with a sense of joyfulness that we felt around um, eating and nutrition and being really um, in a a sense of engagement and in a sense of conscientiousness about our our nutrition and the impact it has on our, our health and our mental health.
1: You mentioned there was another trial which is showing that changing the food that we eat or certain dietary patterns can help reduce the likelihood of developing depression in the future. That sounded yeah, interesting. Yeah,
0: you're not. That's, so the, 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 I think the best trial on that is, is back to a, co- a prospective correlational trial, which was an epidemiological study of 10,000, I think it's like 930 some odd, uh, university students in Spain. And what that study showed is that if you look at them at the beginning of college, or, and, and you look at the how Mediterranean their is, their diet is, so it was a nine point Mediterranean dietary pattern scale. If you look at people in the top half of that, so they're eating a fairly Mediterranean diet in their freshman year, and follow them over four and a half years, kind of checking in about who gets depressed and then uh, and, and and what they're eating they found that there was between a 30 to 52% reduction in the risk of getting clinical depression. And and they ran this as a really interesting study. They, they they did a number of different models. For example, they looked at anybody who got um, an antidepressant in the first two years of the trial and just you know, take, took them out of the data set to really try and see, we're really looking for people over the span of their college career eating a poor dietary pattern versus a Mediterranean dietary pattern. The, the trial that I was thinking about in terms of prevention, it's because I think a lot about college depression. And I treat a lot of college students really love working with young adults. at uh, such a challenging time. I think for me it was a challenging time with my mood. Um, such an exciting time of life for people too. And, and depression is so crippling for individuals um, you know, during the late teens and early 20s. Uh, there's a trial in Australia was really fascinating. Heather Francis led the team. They looked at college freshmen that had poor eating habits and um, had depression. And they did a very simple intervention. This is, I, I sort of joke with clinicians, like, if, if, if this can work, boy, we've got to be able to be effective. This was just a 13-minute video and then a five-minute phone call a week later, and then a second week, uh, uh, one week later, so two weeks after the video, uh, another five-minute phone call. And the five-minute phone was like, hey, God, how are you? Like, you eating some veggies, man, how's dorm life? Like, you using the turmeric, how about the nuts? And so they gave people a little box of nuts, nut butter, olive oil, and then cinnamon and turmeric. So they send these into the college dorm, and, and, and with, like, a lot of encouragement in the video, like, you, you can improve your mental health with food, eat more vegetables, eat more plants. The cinnamon and turmeric, there's a little bit of data about those being good for brain health and brain growth. What they found is that just with that minimal intervention, individuals significantly shifted their diets, there was a significant reduction in anxiety, depression, and stress rating scales at three months and at six months.' like there's like twenty one minutes and there's like twenty three minutes and there's no actual face to face human intervention so very, very you know cost effective intervention in terms of pre- potentially preventing college depression. So that's the trial, I think, that probably relates most to depression. Those two, the son Navarro and, um, uh, and then Heather Francis's trial in Australia.
1: Yeah, I mean, we'll get hold of those and put them in the show notes for anyone who wants to sort of read those uh, uh, further. There's a concept in the book I really liked, which was you'd like to help your patients put their brains in grow mode. And I thought that was really interesting way of thinking about it. So what is grow mode and how do you help your patients get into that state?
0: I encourage my patients and really everybody with the brain to think beyond serotonin, our beloved serotonin, a wonderful, wonderful neurotransmitter. But it feels like the conversation about depression gets reduced, like that's the brain molecule that's involved with mental health, that one and maybe dopamine. And I, I think that really above all of these players is BDNF. And BDNF is a neuro hormone. Ranga, R- R- you brought up connection earlier. And it's really, a, for me, a driving core principle of my own personal life, of how I, I think about my mental health and my happiness and in my family's happiness. and uh, but, but also how I think about my patients when I value them. It's, it's the kind of tentacles of your life reach out. Like, where do they go and what are the qualities of those connections? And, and, and as a psychiatrist, I, I love this notion also that like that, that's exactly what our brain cells do. You know, when you're learning, your brain cells are reaching out and you know, like making, making new connections. And yeah. that's what memory is. That's where you know, our memories like live in these connections between our neurons. It's really just a wow. uh, fascinating to to think about the brain is this not, not what even I learned in medical school 20 years ago. I'm sure they you learn the same thing, right? Hey, you get like 90 billion brain cells, Like, don't mess with them, bro. Like, don't mess up. Don't do bad things (laughs) because you don't get any more. And then we know that's wrong, that your brain is always not a lot, but making some new brain cells. And um, another Felice Jackson study, great study, uh, showing that between 60 and 65, individuals with a healthy diet, you could see a significantly bigger brain like like a, a couple cubic millimeters more brain in the left hippocampus compared to individuals who are eating a very unhealthy dietary western wow. dietary pattern right that's a lot of brain cells like 2 cubic millimeters i mean so that's exciting to me as a clinician and 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 i try and bring that hopefulness and enthusiasm because often when we are struggling with our mental health we really feel badly about ourselves we feel very down we feel very stuck Um, so the idea that, you know, this brain that I'm lugging around, that's not really serving me so well right now in this moment, I have the power to change that. And those things that I know help me feel better, exercising, sleeping well, um, eating well, connecting with loved ones and playing, playing, I was feeling nervous for that, playing a little instrument, playing little music, all those things, uh, support my brain making more connections in a very intentional way. And so I, I love the idea of neuroplasticity. It's really the, the most powerful way that food and lifestyle medicine can work for us like literally giving us more brain resilience, more brain repair, and more brain power that that's what BDNF does.
1: Yeah, it reminds me of uh, just a few hours ago, I was having my morning coffee in the living room and I was uh, reading your book, I was trying to you know, prepare for the, for, the, for the conversation today. And my daughter came down and I was on the page with BDNF on it. And so these, these illustrations in the book are fantastic. So let's see if I've got this right. But she came in, said, Daddy, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm reading this book. I'm uh, talking to a guy called Drew later. She goes, oh, okay, what's Drew about? I said, oh, well, you know, he helps people improve how they feel uh, through many ways. But one of the things he does is help people choose better foods. He goes, oh, cool. And so she came and had a look. She's only eight. And so she read out brain-derived. She couldn't quite make out neurotrophic. So I helped her out with that brain-derived neurotrophic factor. But these illustrations are great because there were four foods that you'd listed in this you know gorgeous graphic. And we went through, you know, so, hey, darling, how many of these are you having? So there was, I think, nuts. There was wild-type seafoods. Um, there Ooh. was berries. And there was dark chocolate. I think I remember that right because of these graphics and she did as well. So then when my son came down later, we ticked off how many he does as well. So I want to say thank you because I love chatting to my kids about all this stuff because, you know, I hope that by sort of feeding them this information at a young age, hopefully this will just sort of seep into their, you know, their subconscious minds as they get older. So we all, all of us now in the family know the four foods, but according to Dr. Drew Ramsey and the research, of course, help us increase levels of BDNF. So thank you for that.
0: I put, in the, And the best data behind that is the nut data. It's a really interesting part of that. Uh, I think it's the Sun Navarro data set. You know, I'm not getting that right. But, but it, it was a study looking at, um, they gave people olive oil who are already in the Mediterranean diet, supplemental olive oil versus supplemental nuts. And they like delivered it to the door. They're like, drink as much olive oil as you can, eat all these nuts every day. And and. In terms of BDNF levels, what they found, and BDNF is not a perfect biomarker for mental health. I don't want everyone to think you should run out and get your BDNF levels measured, but uh, just as a disclaimer. But what but the, they found is there was a protection, something like 78% fewer people had, uh, who ate the nuts that were, um, had severely low levels of BDNF. And so there's something there, and that's really the only, one of the only studies that's shown a real specific correlation. It's one of the reasons again when I hear patients are snacking and they're hungry in the afternoon, or they're a little noshy and they need something, you know, a quick handful of nuts, or I'll mix like some you know nuts and dark chocolate chips, and and you know you've got you've got a nice a nice mix to keep you going that probably is good for your brain health.
1: What is your view on things like supplements and probiotics?
0: Certainly, there are some supplements I think are important, like vitamin D. Is the data great around vitamin D and depression? No, it's horrible. There's no good data that vitamin D prevents winter depression. Do I still think giving a little vitamin D in winter is helpful for my patients? I do. Um, So um, omega-3 fats, if you don't eat fish at all. Um, and you're willing to take an omega-3 fat supplement or liquid and, and you want a more naturalistic approach to try treating depression or anxiety, I certainly will use fish oil supplements um, in that scenario. There are a few other couple natural antidepressants that, like St. John's work that have some good data on them. So uh, at the same time, what I often see is that people are using supplements to avoid mental health treatment or to, uh, to kind of supplement or augment mental health treatment or replace it. And that always concerns me because it means you're working on your mental health alone. And I think it's always best to work on your mental health in partnership, whether that's with somebody you love or a friend or a counselor or a therapist or a psychiatrist. But but because a lot of times I find people are taking things without effect. And, And that's medications, right? They've been on this or that medication forever and they've still been chronically depressed or they've been taking the supplement forever and they're still not feeling well. In terms of the gut, I think probiotics are a good example. There's, a, there's very little data that there's a you know specific intervention in terms of probiotics that, that help with mental health. There's some data, certainly, that some strands of bacteria in our gut help with improve our cognition and help decrease anxiety, and that people who get depressed have different organisms living in their gut than people who don't. We know that right now. So how do you get a kind of better mix of bacteria in the gut? I think you do it the way that humans always have done it, and that's we ferment stuff, and then we eat it, and then we eat a lot of plants. And that, that's really, if you look at how do traditional diets kind of line up and how are they different from the Western diet, they include more plants, they include more olive oil or some type of natural oil, they don't have processed foods, and they often have a lot more seafood, but they almost always have fermented foods. That's a yeah. traditional Japanese diet or an Indian diet, right? There, there's all these ferments that happen and that's what we seed the gut with in terms of these healthy bacteria. I just think, uh, and I like prescribing food better than supplements. I just trust it.
1: Yeah. It's it's a tricky one, I think, because, you know, I, I also adopt a food first approach. Uh, I do think supplements have a role for certain people at certain times, for sure. Um, and then, you know, again, just sharing what I found with certain patients, I, I, I've got some patients with anxiety that, that come to mind, who will tell me that there's a particular liquid uh, probiotic that they take, that when they're taking it, they really feel that their symptoms completely change, that they don't feel anxious anymore. And then when they stop, um, they come back. And you know that is not a clinical trial, but on that one on one individual basis, it makes you think, so well, we know there's a gut brain axis, we know certain trials are shown that different compositions of gut bacteria uh, impact what is going on in the brain and then so I just think, well, could it be that in some of these trials we've got people with vastly different microbiomes yeah, and so- yeah, I, I mean
0: I think you should just say it accurately in our clinical trials, we've never paid attention to the microbiome or inflammatory markers. So, we're hoping that randomization works to really just separate out and, and make the populations equal. But it, it is kind of a curious thing, and, and yeah. it's increasingly going, increasingly, we're seeing in the data. Right Here's a trial, and one of the other things we looked at there's a great trial on bipolar disorder. And what's a probiotic trial. So it was a trial at Johns Hopkins. They looked at uh, 80 individuals who were admitted from mania. So they have bipolar 1 disorder. They've been hospitalized. They get treatment as usual, usually lithium, Depakote, or an atypical antipsychotic, so their medication. And then half of them got a placebo. Half of them got a probiotic. What and they measured something called an inflammatory index. Uh, th- this is not used a lot, but it's looking at how uh, sort of the, the amount of um, uh, I think it was antibodies to certain things, uh, certain viruses that kind of give a sense of you know, how much inflammation somebody has. Um, what they found is individuals who had a high inflammatory index who got the probiotic a 90% reduction in the rehospitalization rate over six months compared to the placebo. We, we don't see effects that big usually in medicine. So, you know, the idea there is that part of a manic episode potentially is related to a kind of inflammatory dysregulation or, or storm somehow that is some, somewhat regulated or influenced by the microbiome.
1: Yeah. Is eating for better mental health expensive or does everyone have access to it?
0: No. I think if you're studying for mental health, you to save money. And, and according to the research, that's, that that's true. The SMILES study... Individuals saved, I think it was $140 a month. It was around $1,000 a year, if I remember correctly, um, uh, was estimated in terms of their savings as they began to eat a more Mediterranean-style diet. The, The key to eating for broader brain health, again, is to really take a step back and think about the myths that exist around food, that it's complicated, that it takes a lot of time, that it's way too expensive. One of the power players in the book is red beans. Now, you can buy those dried, soak them, two, three two, two, three bucks a pound in the UK, you know, a couple pounds, I would guess, um, uh, for a kilogram. Um, so, yeah. it, you know, uh, there's a, 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 certainly cost is a factor. Uh, we, we have a, a resource coming out on our website, uh, Brain Food on a Budget, where we uh, break down all of some of the, the, the best foods. And, th- and then I think it's again, it's that challenge, like I really like wild salmon. Wild salmon can be like between 10 and $20 a pound unless you buy it canned. And if you buy it canned, boy, it's, it's, it's cooked right after it's pulled out of the ocean. It's in there. It's super fresh. You make it into salmon salad. You make it into salmon burgers. Uh, great value. That wasn't something that I ever really did until I got into this work. Or a, a can of sardines or anchovies. So, um, and then I, I always think, look, of the things we have to spend money on. I want to invest in my brain health and I want to invest in my family's brain health to the best of my ability. And I think working on that, not not with like extreme and harsh constraints and lots of guilt and shame, not, not any of that, but working on that with a sense of, again, joyfulness. How can I engage my family in a loving way with food? How can we cook together? How can I... Um, based on maybe a limited palate of one of my family members, you know, still get a lot of brain nutrition in there. And yeah. and to really, you know, I'm a parent. I know sometimes food is a burden and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't cook another meal and do another dish. But I try to get back to that reset as much as possible.
1: Yeah. We should cover the environment at some point in this conversation because I know that all this talk of fish, um, for a lot of people... They get very upset because they're very keen to try and help the environment, the climate, and they don't like people promoting fish. Or they, you know, I feel we should at least have that conversation.
0: For sure. There should be environmental concerns about what we eat. I think the environmental debate has really been framed in a way that revolves around some misinformation. And I think it's really concerning. For example, the misinformation regarding things like fake meat and impossible burger. Maybe misinformation is a strong word, but the way that that kind of way of creating food is being framed as somehow healthy. Essentially, it's food processing of the same ingredients that are being used for the last 50 years that have ruined our health um, compared to, you know, something like grass fed beef, a local beef. And, And that the environmental, you know, kind of debate is like these plant foods are good. And meat, food, and seafood is bad. Um, And I think that's really overly reductionistic. I think it leaves out, for example, some of my clear experiences, like where's your organic kale come from, folks? So it's all grown in manure from dairy cows, or most of it is. Just they scoop it up in the conventional dairies and they they ferment it. They get it, you know, really hot to kill all the chemicals and reduce everything down. And then they spread it on the field, and 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 that's where organic kale comes from. And there's somehow that like that organic kale is like revered and pulled out separate from the system that supports its growth, which largely revolves around manure. Because if you're not using manure on your fields, then you're just using chemical fertilizers, which usually the same people. Who are the same kind of, let's say, groups or movements that are really supporting plant foods and not eating animal foods? I don't think they've spent a lot of time growing food. And if you spend time growing food, you spend, especially on farm, small farms, you spend a lot of time with poo and manure and animals. Small farms have always worked that way. I think that the concerns about the way the meat system exists are 100% valid, right? We have a system that wastes meat. We have a system that repurchases and process meats into foods that are horrible for us from, you know, all kind horrible for us, all kinds of, um you know, meat pockets and meats with fried breading around them and sweet meats. Um in, in terms of seafood, the seafood uh, is a really, um, uh, to me, important place to be an eater because it gets me at least minimally involved in the system using my food dollars to support people who are, for example, taking care of oyster beds or to support um, farmers who are growing mussels, a very environmentally friendly way of producing food. Um, uh, I certainly appreciate if I'm being conscientious of the fish that I'm buying. I'm not buying things like, I don't know, farm tilapia or farm shrimp. Uh, I'm trying to buy mostly wild type seafoods. I'm trying to buy small fish. And encouraging people to buy small fish. More anchovies and sardines, you know, less tuna, less wild salmon. So um, those are all ways I think that we can work to improve yeah. um, uh, our impact. I, I, I also think there is lots of other new concerns that we don't have many answers to. But I'm going to go down with the fish is kind of what I've decided. If we're going to, like, destroy their environment and fill them up with plastic, I'm, I don't know. I'm just going to suffer the same fate as they do. (laughs) Maybe that's, maybe that's strange, but um, uh, I certainly think there's also things like, you know, I don't eat fish from lakes or fish from rivers because those are all polluted. Um, But again, we know about that because people were eating those foods. And then because of that, and because of our interest in nutrition, there's a lot of cleanup efforts that have come in terms of how do we reduce and you know the environmental impact on our water supply um i think overfishing is a a huge concern i think slavery in the fish industry is a huge concern i don't want to minimize these concerns um but for me personally as an eater and then i guess for me as a nutritional psychiatrist looking at the data and then also somebody interested in brain health and brain development there's a great uh book on uh uh, human brain evolution by brett stetka Stetka. and and he talks about and, and writes about the science of how our human brains evolved and the importance of small fish and shellfish so i think i also eat those foods in some ways out of respect of our history and genetic history and evolutionary history as i've as i've understood it through experts like brett um and and to really um you know, do my best uh, to to be responsible in those seafood choices. I don't think that's in any way a complete answer, but um, it, it's, it's where I am now, yeah. which is trying to eat three to four seafood meals a week. For me, that consists of a mix of anchovies and sardines, usually on gnocchi or over a pasta um, <laughs> or on a Caesar salad. Um, usually like an oven-roasted wild salmon filet, probably trying to get maybe six ounces or so into every family member at least once a week, and then trying to eat mussels or other bivalves, particularly you uh, ones that are farmed in the U.S. There's some concern about increased microplastics in the stomachs of bivalves, particularly in the report I saw coming out of China. Um, but well, I What do is bivalve? Develop.
1: Could you just explain that for people? I didn't know that term till I, till I read
0: your book. Bivalms are mussels, clams, and oysters, and so they're a uh, grouping in the seafood family, mollusks, and, and um, they, they're filter feeders, and so, you know, if, uh, understandably, people have concerns, are they filtering out all the plastics and the toxins, and, and you know, it depends the water that they're grown in. The uh, truth is that when you, that these foods that are very good for us, bioconcentrate nutrients. And so by by doing that, if you grow food in a toxic environment, it's going to bio and concentrate some of those toxins. And that that data is really getting misused to then vilify these foods, Um, as opposed to focusing on, all right, how can we all stay clear on, this is a really important food supply, 70% of the planet's an ocean, right? You don't have to do anything. I mean, think about especially when people are like, oh, no fish, eat more plants. It's like, have you grown some plants? Because I have. You know how freaking hard that is. You know how much diesel fuel it takes. You, first you've got to level that field, right? Then you then you disk, then it uh, depends on what you're planting. you're either seed uh, drilling or you' you're planting seedlings by hand. right? Then you're weeding weed, weed or you're spraying. then then you're fertilizing either with manure, or top dressing, right then you're tending to the plants then you're you're harvesting then you're processing that food then you're driving to market right this is so energy intensive um and and just compare that with uh, you know certainly takes a lot of energy but um catching anchovies right Uh, you don't have to plant it Um, you don't have to tend to it you just catch it so uh, you know i i think that um the sea makes a lot of sense to me and there's also more than fish that comes out of here uh, out of there there's seaweed um, you know, which I think is, is a really interesting and important uh, human food.
1: Yeah. What you're speaking to is that lack of connection, you know, that lack of connection to the food supply. And you're someone who has literally spent a lot of time growing food. So you you understand what it takes to grow different types of food. Whereas I think many of us are trying to enter the environmental debate from a theoretical position, from sitting on the fence, looking down, going, oh, this is what we need to do. Whereas I guess it's probably the farmers who know best how we can actually you know, improve the food supply in a much more environmentally friendly way. Well,
0: I mean, it, the reason I don't like to trash talk about food in that way is that farmers are the number one group after physicians in terms of suicide risk. And that in India and America, there has been thousands of farmers who've died by suicide in the last two to three years. And so there's a way that as we trash talk, and and I would agree in a kind of, you know, uh, polite and educated, but often, you know, minimally informed way. It's easy because it's confusing and there aren't clear answers to take strong positions. And that's where I've really... um, Really worked hard to, to get into more of a stance with um, a show on male mental health with my friend, a psychiatrist Greg Scott yeah. Brown. And Greg and I talk a lot about this idea of curiosity before judgment. Mm-hmm. I really want to be curious and not make a judgment of things and, and, and realize that some of this stuff is too big for me to have a full comprehensive understanding of. And I'm going to just, I'm going to do the best that I can given my limitations and, and, and the yeah. possibilities in front of me
1: curiosity before judgment i really really like that i was going to ask you what is the um what is the most important lesson that you have learned in over 20 years of seeing patients uh, not sure if you've just answered that or not without realizing it but i mean if i were to ask you that what would you say
0: spending important time with your partner and your kids I think that's the least valued, most important thing that I've learned. Nobody is going to give you a spot on your resume because you're a good dad or a good partner. Nobody's going to give you a promotion or give you more money for that. but I, I think that that's the most um, deeply gratifying uh, human experience, at least for me in terms of what I've been doing with my life around kind of family um, yeah. for other people. Um, if that isn't your your structure, I, I think really being intentional about the quality, interaction i'm just struck that i talk to many people for 45 minutes once a week and over time i realize i know them better than you know many people in my own life simply by just really listening to all of the nuance and intricacy going on in their inner world and and how hard it is for us to get into that space with people these days
1: i mean i find that through this podcast a lot, I, I find sometimes, wow, I've had a two-hour conversation with someone where I've been listening, attentive, not looked at my phone, not looked at my emails. I think, wow, I, I know some of my guests pretty well. I probably, when was the last time I had a two-hour conversation with some of my friends like that, where we weren't distracted at all? Do you know what I mean? It's really been very humbling for me to go, wow, maybe that is something I can take away from the podcast into the rest of my life.
0: One of the things that that struck me about you over the years is the amount of vulnerability uh, that you've been sharing about really your own mental health. I think that's quite rare in this space, especially for men. And and I was really curious in a broad way to to ask you before we end um, uh, about some of your take on the struggles that men have in terms of their mental health and talking about mental health, particularly with this... This paradox, I think, in masculinity where, you know, it feels like modern masculinity really is revolving more around a, a notion of strength through vulnerability, that, that I can be very open, humble, non-defensive, and and, and that makes me stronger and, and more settled. Uh, but that's not in any way how masculinity has been built in the past, right? Tough, strong, silent, stoic, grit my teeth, get through it. I don't have pain. I don't have depression. And... And 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 that's led to men mainly treating mental health through substance abuse. So fifty percent of men in America one in two will have a substance use disorder in their lifetime. It's led to men being particularly white. White males are seventy-five uh, to eighty percent of all suicides in the U.S. Um, and and it it's something I've been trying to wrap my head around, both honoring the importance that we're at a certain moment and kind of the patriarchy and reckoning with masculinity, but also for those of us who are are men right now, how do we think about mental health and and, and improving our own mental health and ideas around male mental health?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's a big challenge. Obviously the statistics on male mental health are, are pretty alarming and worrying. And I have thought a lot about this as to why is this really become such a problem? And I think just expanding out for a second i think as modern life has changed so rapidly over the last 40 50 years i think women and men have both had their struggles in in very different ways i think a lot of women a lot of my peer group my age group who i talk to a lot of my male friends as girlfriends or wives i speak to really struggle with anxiety with depression with a lack of purpose there there seems to be something and I appreciate I'm a man speaking about this, so this is just my perception from what I've picked up that there's a real um there's a real trickiness of actually you know some of my peers have you know been to university got had uh, decent jobs and they uh decide to start a family they 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 get pregnant they have the baby they're let's say staying at home for a period of time and really feel this kind of lack of Oh man, I used to have a a really important role in society. I used to really contribute with other adults at this job, whereas now I'm just at home with the baby. And I may be isolated as family, maybe we've moved for work. So there's no one around me, there's no friends, there's no family. So and then they see like these female celebrities on TV who seem to have the perfect boyfriend and kids and the perfect body straight, you know, six weeks after pregnancy, which is then blown up in the press. And so there's this kind of feeling of discontentment that I just can't compete with this kind of Manicured and probably unrealistic image that's there in front of me. So I I, I think the changing gender roles are certainly uh, playing a role here. And then for men, I think you know, uh, again, I'm not I'm not sort of um, fantasizing about the past where you know where women um, maybe you know knew they weren't going to get a job. Their role was to sort of bring up the family. I'm, I'm not at all saying we should go back to that. Just to be really clear, but I think for a lot of a lot of men, struggle with this idea that, you know, they kind of were brought up with this idea that the man should be the breadwinner. I think it's just trying to fit, it's trying to understand where we fit into this new way of living. And I think depending on how we were brought up, depending on what we saw in our parents, that often conditions us to what we think the world should be like or what our expectation is. I think that plays a role. Yeah, I mean, I'll it, tell you one it's thing so hard to... because
0: I think even in well-meaning uh, parents um, of the last generation, there is a profound amount of uh, not subtle and not so subtle misogyny. There's profound support oh, yeah. for sort of patriarchy and gender roles. I mean, it's really it's really challenging to unwind. I, I think what you're speaking about is how, you know, as you start a family and you see some of these traditional gender roles are like... I don't know, like I remember when we had our first baby and, and I thought I'd be a really um uh, uh you know like right dialed into parenthood. And there was this way that that I didn't quite know what my role was, you know, like I wasn't abreast. And when like really there was a lot of crying, like I could do so much, but like I I wasn't I wasn't gonna really, you know, I'm not mom. And and I, I kind of came up with this phrase really I said it was it joked with friends, it's said you know, daddies aren't mommies. And and As much as I'm a firm believer in in full equality and a full feminist, uh, uh, there is a way that, um, for me, fatherhood put me into kind of, uh, I would say, worship and adoration of uh, my wife, but of women in general, and of the really just profound ways that motherhood is not celebrated, that lactationing and breastfeeding is not supported, and that, that we really have our priorities wrong. Yeah,
1: I, I I couldn't agree more. I I had that same realization. You know, I'd grown up, you know, thinking about equality, and you know, I would, and I, I completely support that. But I remember, yeah, like you, this moment when my son was was crying, already fallen over, and you know, I I thought I'm a pretty hands on parent. I'm always around. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. He didn't want me. He <laughs> wanted his mom. Right? right that and and for me i think it was an affront to my ego at the time all those years back but uh, actually it is really and i i see this certainly with my wife and, and and other women i you know have a newfound appreciation of how incredible uh they are you know going through childbirth you know you know growing another uh Organism, animal inside them, growing another person, you know, that is something we will never do. You know, we will never experience what that is like or that uh, the pain of, let's say, childbirth and how one gets through that. You know, I, I really see a resilience in women, or I've got a newfound appreciation of that resilience in a way that I possibly didn't have 10 or 15 years ago. When it comes to men, in terms of your original question, I also, something I observed in the lockdowns here in the UK was that when people were out for their, let's say their daily walk here, you'd often see women walking with other women. Like almost certainly there'd be two or three women or two walking together chatting. I rarely saw men doing the same thing. For me, if I go out, it's by myself. My wife goes out, she meets a friend mm-hmm. and they go and catch her whilst they're walking. And, I'm not saying that's the whole picture, but it just made me think, wow, there's something about that. No, that no, I You go with a group of
0: guys, right? You go up with a group of women first and start talking about the kids, right? You go out with a group of dads, sometimes they'll leave and, like, I realize, dang, like, we're awful. Nobody said, like, hey, how are the kids? How, you know, like, sometimes, but oftentimes, it, you know, it, it just kind of has woken me up yeah. to, uh, you know, again, just kind of biases and values that – um I wanted to check and make you When know, I, but I noticed that after dinner. I made sure the next time i I made sure I asked everybody about the kids you know and got that conversation going
1: but i but I think men and women there's also we we can support equality, but also recognize that we're we can be different in some ways as well, and we don't have to nullify that part of ourselves. I think that is. Again, it's like everything we've been talking about. There's nuance to
0: well, everything. Well, I think the it uncomfortable have to part be... for a lot of men is also really being very, very clear and committed to the notion that there's lots that women are better at. Because I think part yeah. of really being seen and perceived as the dominant gender for so long it is that that's really threatening, the idea that women are actually much better at a variety of things than men. And I don't, I don't mean to be yeah. so sort of gendered in this um, uh, because that conversation has really opened up over the past four or five years. But... Um, I do, I do think that part of what we're speaking about is where mental health for men is challenging. And I think uh, because our role is really in transition and, and one of, uh, yeah. in the sense of, you know, just simple things for, for younger men, like what makes a good man today? You know, like, how do yeah. you date today? How do you show respect? What is masculinity? And especially if you're from a more, let's say, traditional culture where it's not as easy as maybe it is, I don't, I don't know, for me to kind of like, I don't know define modern masculinity here in america because like we're constantly evolving and we're new as opposed to like no what a man is in your culture is really defined very differently in a much more probably nuanced and historical way
1: yeah well drew i'd love to go deep on that and maybe next time we get together for a conversation either at your farm or next time you're in the uk we'll we'll definitely follow up there just to sort of close off this conversation, you are a pioneer in this area about food and mental health. You know, you've been practicing this way. You've been researching this for many, many years. I think you've done a great job at putting it all together in your latest book, Eat to De- Breach Depression and Anxiety, which is going to be super helpful for people. Just to close off this conversation, the podcast is called Feel Better, Live More. When we feel better in ourselves, we get more out of life. And, you know, one of you have had- I wonder if you have any closing words, any closing thoughts, you know, about things that people can think about introducing into their lives right now, no matter where they fall on that mental health spectrum, that's going to help them get more out of life.
0: Well, I would think first is validating the importance of self-care, and that self-care isn't selfish, that self-care is foundational. and be clear and rigorous and kind and loving in your care of yourself starting with the words that you use and 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 the time that you give yourself to the types of nourishment and the foods that we've talked about in this in this episode that fuel the brain and can fuel and improve mental health based on the most recent research i also hope people feel inspired to do something mental health is an active process increasingly in our clinic we talk about the concept of mental fitness that we're really working on improving our capacity for emotional connection our capacity for love our capacity for creativity that that we're really in um, our daily lives and rituals and habits we're, we're trying to promote a set of lifestyle choices that to the best of science ability to tell us what's good for our brain is really, is really supporting us and supporting our mental health. And there are lots of ways to do that, I hope is the other good news you hear, and lots of science supporting the notion that your brain and your mental health evolve over time. Um, and that the, the more that you learn about the self, the more that you experiment a bit with things like food and improving sleep and improving your movement, Feel better, live more is a mental health concept. Feel better is really saying when we feel in the upper echelon of our mental health, the world and life is amazing. We are filled with love and creativity and spontaneity and connection. And and we live more. And when we're missing those elements, and we've all been in states probably where we've had more of that and states where we've had less of that, and the world can look like a very, very uh, dark and isolated and unfriendly and environmentally uh, you know increasingly distressed place. Um, so uh, I, I hope. Everyone here is encouragement to feed their mental health, that nutrition is a neglected piece of the puzzle, but also that nutrition isn't the only piece of this puzzle. And that putting together your mental health is just a really important place, really rewarding place for you to spend time and energy and to invest in. Nothing will give you better dividends and more rewards than taking care of and investing in your mental health.
1: I love it, Drew. Thanks so much for making time. Really, really enjoyed our conversation together. Appreciate it. Take care. Really hope you enjoyed that conversation. As always, do have a think about one thing that you can take away and start applying into your own life. And as always, let Drew and I know what you thought on social media. Before you go, I really want to let you know about Friday Five. It's my weekly newsletter that contains five short doses of positivity to get you ready for the weekend. And in a world of endless emails, it really is delightful that many of you tell me that Friday Five is one of the only weekly emails that you actually look forward to receiving. It usually contains a practical tip for your health. I'll usually share a book or an article I've been reading, a quote that's caused me to stop and reflect basically anything that I feel would be helpful to share with you. So if that sounds like something you would like to receive each Friday, you can sign it for free at drchatterjee.com forward slash Friday five. And if you enjoyed listening to this week's podcast and found the content useful, please do have a think about sharing it with your friends and families there someone in your life who you think would really benefit from listening to this show, please do let them know. Of course, you could do this on social media or you could just send them a link to this episode right now along with a personal message. Please also do consider leaving a review on whichever podcast platform you listen on. And of course, please do support the sponsors. If you are new to my content, you may be interested to know that I myself have written four books that are available to buy all over the world. I've covered all kinds of different topics physical health, mental health, emotional health, nutrition, sleep, stress, behavior change, weight loss. So do take a moment to check them out. They are all available as paperbacks, ebooks, and as audiobooks, which I am narrating. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week. Please do press follow on whichever podcast platform you listen on so you will get notified when my latest conversation comes out. And always remember... You can be the architects of your own health. Making lifestyle change is always worth it because when you feel better, you live more.